Well, Israel's national flag carrier El Al has suspended flights to South Africa. It happened either just before or during or after the ICJ case against Israel ordered it to find ways to stop killing ordinary citizens in Gaza and report back on measures on how it was doing that within a month. A report on the website Israel Hayom said that the number of Israelis who plan to visit South Africa has been steadily decreasing and this has caused El Al, the largest airline in his in Israel to make decisions both for commercial reasons and because of its ongoing diplomatic uncertainty. As a result, the only way to get to South Africa, and I suppose from South Africa to Israel, will be with foreign companies and a stopover along the way. That was a statement from El Al earlier on today. Well, Associate Editor Daily Maverick, Feriel Hafaji is with us this evening. And and Feriel, the, the ICJ's ruling, South Africa didn't get all of its requests granted, particularly over the desire for a cessation of hostilities, yet it is certainly a significant victory for the legal team. Um, Certainly a very significant victory, Bruce. If you look at what they did get, the preventive measures, um, they got most of what they asked for. Obviously, not the ceasefire, but I do think that most people on the SAT would have told you that they didn't expect to get that one. Um, The Minister of International Relations was on a few TV stations earlier saying that the ruling, the order, is so strict that in fact it amounts Tantamount to a ceasefire order. Uh, however, the the uh, I don't think anybody's expecting that, that Israel will comply. Already, Israel has denounced the ruling as anti-Semitic. What if it fails to comply? What if it does not do as the ICJ has instructed? My colleagues tell me that what then happens is that South Africa can make a complaint to the UN Security Council, where, of course, the U.S., which is still Israel's biggest ally, although it's been ratcheting up the complaints about Israel's behavior substantially in the past fortnight, um, has a veto right. So that could happen. But what is uh, what, what I found striking today is that the court also ordered um, that Israel has to come back to it with a progress report yeah. on the measures by the 26th of February. That surely is substantial. And I think that there are a few other capitals watching this um, order or this judgment um, with great concern today because it could mean that all those countries which continue to supply and are, as we speak, Israel with the arms um, for the war which is ongoing may be taking a second look because this case now becomes a multi-year genocide hearing. The court found that there is that there's plausible grounds for the case to continue. I don't think that it found a prima facie case uh, for genocide against mm. Israel like some commentators are saying. Yeah, I mean, is, is uh, to Hunter this evening on uh, the, the, the portal formerly called uh, Twitter saying that Israel has dubbed yes. the judgment anti-Semitic. Um, Lady Pandor has no expectations that Israel will comply. The main move next is in the UN Security Council. Signatories of the Genocide Convention cannot veto the ceasefire now that Israel is suspected of genocide. Now, that's quite a strong statement on behalf of Kunita Hunter, suspected of genocide. What the court has said is that there's no prima facie evidence of genocide, but it's worth investigating. Yes. So, so they, they made it clear 
several times, if you listen carefully to Judge Donahue, that they are not making a case for genocide. Yeah. That will be the substance of, a, I think, like I say, a multi-year, really complex legal case about is what's happening genocide or not. But the orders that they've made may bring some kind of relief to the Palestinian people who we can almost see in in real time, are suffering enormous hardships, 25,700 deaths, 63,000 injuries, pregnant women really suffering. If it brings comfort, water, food, fuel to those people, then surely we have to say that it is a good order. Feral Hafaji, thank you. Associate Editor at Daily Maverick this evening. Listening to that, Director of the Political Futures Consultancy, Daniel Silk. The ANC has never made a secret of its support for the Palestinian cause, Daniel. This time they took very strong action as the South African government to show support. How will this play out for South Africa in the world of diplomacy and potentially in South Africa's financial standing in the world, I wonder? Uh, Daniel Silk, is Daniel with us? Daniel, we've got, there, there are two of us who've got access to the same computer, Daniel, I apologize. I'm clicking on and somebody's clicking off and somebody's clicking on and I'm clicking off. Daniel Silk at the Political Futures Consultancy, good evening. Yes, hello Bruce, there I am are. here. There we go. Implications for South Africa following this judgment at the ICJ. Well, Bruce, it's really interesting. I mean, the world is very polarized at the moment and becoming increasingly polarized on all sorts of issues, not just on the Middle East, but clearly on Russia, Ukraine, on China, a whole host of other political economic issues. Uh, And I think uh, we are seeing certainly a polarized reaction from the world to uh, the Israel-Gaza conflict. Now, South Africa's... uh, uh, very, uh, I think, uh, well, well, well versed uh, and historic uh, linkages with um, the Palestinians and their call for a Palestinian, a Palestinian state certainly uh, put South Africa in that particular camp, uh, perhaps the camp of the global south that's become known. But at the same time, you've seen a polarization of attitudes coming out from the United States, from many Western countries and other countries as well. Uh, So I think South Africa is going to gain some traction as a result of taking the lead on this issue amongst parts of the world. And I think at the same time, she's going to find herself in even more difficulty with perhaps more conservative or centrist governments who uh, already see South Africa as an unreliable partner. Okay, so that, I mean, it is, I mean, South Africa's put a stake in the ground that it, it cannot withdraw and, and, and is treating this as a, as a great victory. Just, I mean, purely in the interests of South Africa, then, if you look at the, the ANC parading this as an enormous victory uh, for the freedom of the Palestinian people, etc., 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 this is, you know, uh, the ANC looking to capitalize in as much as it is, you know, very much behind the people of Palestine, um, is seeking to capitalize in this politically, domestically as well, no doubt. Well, this won't be the first time that a country has used a major international issue to bolster themselves (laughs) domestically. Now, the ANC finds itself in a position where, from a domestic point of view, it has very few issues to hang its election hat on, uh, the election perhaps expected before the end of August. And it has found um, and piggybacked onto a very resonant uh, global international relations issue, which has extra residents for many voters in South Africa, particularly in the Western Cape. And I think it's certainly milking this to, uh, to, to, to the degree that it is. Uh, it really is almost a, a double benefit whammy for the ANC 
But in the end, uh, whilst the ANC may see some domestic traction in this among some core of voters, historically South Africans have much, been much more rather to express themselves politically on domestic concerns rather than on international concerns. Thank you very much to Daniel Silk, Director at the Political Futures Consultancy this evening on The Money Show. I met Bob Rubin, the former Treasury Secretary to Bill Clinton, when I went on a trip to Columbia Journalism School in New York a while back. At the time, Bob Rubin was the chair of Citibank, a very serious and learned man, deep insight into the frailties of the global economy at the time, and also, of course, the U.S. economy. I thought we needed to understand something very real and serious about the state of the U.S. government finances at a time where stock markets there are on... I don't know, the equivalent of a sugar rush of rate-cutting expectations, and we've got markets hitting records almost on a daily basis. Bob Rubin cautioning this week that the U.S. is in a terrible place, he called it, with regard to its federal deficits, and he called for tax increases to address the deterioration. His comments, of course, come in an election year, the prospect of a tax-cutting-addicted Donald Trump returning to the White House. Lelo Giose is the Chief Investment Officer and Principal at First Avenue Investment Management. It's been too long, Lelo Giose. Welcome. Please explain to us this issue of the American deficits and why it is such a big deal, particularly in the face of markets which are ignoring any bad news. Hi, Bruce. By the way, it's great to talk to you again. Um, I enjoy always being on your show. Um, the the question of deficits is extremely important for fiscal prudence because there is a point past which you borrow beyond your means to pay back. Now, that's true for every nation, but you can, you can argue to some extent it's not true for the United States. And the reason why is because the United States borrows in dollars and pays back in dollars, and the United States can print dollars and devalues currency, right? Whereas if you borrow in, if you if you are South Africa, any third world country, and you borrow in dollars, you have to target all your exports to earn dollars so you can pay back your creditors. Okay, so for any other country that borrows in dollars, it's more of a problem than America, which bar which borrows it in, in its own currency. That said, it's never a free pass. There does come a point where as dynamic as the U.S. economy is, and it's been creating jobs at a clip that is unimaginable. Everyone has been talking about a soft landing. Well, it doesn't look like there's going to be a a plain landing anytime soon. Um, Consumer spending is strong, and that's 75% of the U.S. GDP. It's still driving the economy higher. Okay, so given that... Um, tax receipts are meeting, if not exceeding, expectations. But if you keep borrowing beyond what you're collecting at full throttle, you are leading yourself or you are, you are, you are driving yourself to a point where the investment community itself starts saying, well, maybe we need to think about reducing your credit rating. Maybe you are riskier, which increases your borrowing costs, and then you're caught in the downward spiral that we are in in South Africa. But I have to say, Bruce, the solution is not what what uh, Mr. Rubin or Dr. Rubin says. It's not increasing taxes. That's a definite no-no in America. You can't do that. <laughs> you have to cut tax, right? Otherwise, you get voted out. It's simple. Yeah. No new taxes. 
you 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 just can't. But here's a problem. The problem is that both Trump previously and Biden have one thing in common. They live in a very profligate manner. Trump cut taxes and he financed those cuts through borrowings. Biden has stimulated the economy through fiscal stimulus, a renewable infrastructure plan and so on. Okay, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, and so on. So he has increased tax credits um, towards companies that uh, are, in, are in infrastructure, are in renewable energy, and so on. So he's trying to borrow to grow the economy. And of course it's working, but he's borrowed too much. So as far as the American public is concerned, it has a problem. The two gentlemen who are vying for the presidency, if you forget just for a minute, Nikki Haley, um, she may still upset, but she may not. But the two gentlemen are not good with money. So America, America has a problem. No, absolutely. I actually saw an interesting no. comment uh, today, and uh, uh, Pippa Malmgren, who worked also with Bill Clinton many years ago, pointing out that Robert Kennedy Jr. is becoming an outlier possibility um, as a, a really big upset potential for the elections. He's standing as an independent, um, and she was saying the view is that he can't win the Electoral College, but he's profoundly impacting the race, both through ideas and pulling large numbers of voters away from both Trump and Biden. He's got the highest approval ratings and he's out fundraising the rest. He's attracting all of those who can't bear Trump or Biden. I disagree with the Washington establishment about how many independents there are now in America. Most say 8%, but I think it's an old number based on old methods. The polls show as many as 49 to 65% now identify as independent. There's never been an independent, as far as I know, who's won a U.S. election, but wouldn't that be an interesting upset to get a Kennedy back in the White House? Well, you know, that's an interesting statement because, you know, Trump just won in New Hampshire. He won in Iowa. But for an incumbent leader in his party, he won by 50 or 60 percent. He didn't win by 80 or 90 percent. That's what what that's what an incumbent does. Yeah. You, you you sweep your own party to the tune of 80 or 90 percent. What that means is he's not doing that well with Republicans. And by the way, to win a general election, you need. You need independents, and independents don't want Trump. Independents will most likely go to Biden. Now, Robert Kennedy Jr. coming in, he's going to take votes more away from Biden, who stood the chance of winning independents, millennials, yeah. uh, of course, uh, black people, uh, Latinas, and white women. So Robert Kennedy Jr. is going to spoil the party for the Democratic Party. They have to talk to him. I don't think the independents are as high as 40 or 50 percent. They're probably at 15 percent at most. But that 15 percent, 15 percent is extremely crucial when you have, as Biden, when you're competing against a gentleman like Trump, who has a fervent, almost cult-like following amongst Republicans. Astonishing, isn't it? It's a weird place. It really is. Thank you, the Chief Investment Officer and Principal at First Avenue Investment Management. Thank you very much for bringing us that perspective this evening on The Money Show. The Money Show. The Markets. Tato Mashiko is Portfolio Manager at Sunland Private Wealth. And uh, Tato, it started in the red this morning, quite deeply in the red. And there was an astonishing turnaround in market sentiment around midday. And we've ended a week considerably better off than where we started. 
Good evening, Bruce. I think uh, there was quite a bit of skittishness earlier on today with um, people anticipating the release of the Fed's preferred inflation number, the PCE or Personal Consumption Index. And so we saw a bit of skittishness earlier on, but uh, that data did come out later, a bit better than expected. And of course, we had very, very positive results from LVMH in Europe, which um, was a good read-through for Richmond here locally. So we ended up slightly up for the day, I think about 1.5%. Uh, so not too bad given where we started. It's interesting. LVMH, of course, the world's biggest luxury goods group, mostly because they've got boo- added into the portfolio, which Richemont doesn't have. Um, and luxury goods, I mean, Richemont's own trading update a couple of weeks ago, sort of belying the, the China crisis story. Rich people in China are still spending on fancy gadgets and gizmos. Um, and the LVMH story, I think, tells pretty much the same sort of picture. Well, 100%. I think uh, rich people are quite uh, impervious to the economic situations that uh, the rest of us uh, suffer from time to time, shall we say. And uh, the results today showing that quite perfectly. I think uh, they reported sales up 10% um, year on year for the quarter and 9% for the year as a whole. So very, very positive, given that they grew over 20% uh, top line in 2022, so off a strong base to still deliver that type of performance, just showing you the brand equity within that LVMH portfolio, yeah. as you mentioned, both in the jewelry and the, the clothing side accessories. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's an astonishing success story. It really, really is. For South Africa, the retail trading updates this week have not been spectacular, but they've not been catastrophic. And uh, I think that's also painted an interesting picture of South Africa from uh, from an investment perspective, because, you know, I think Lewis was the latest one today to come out with a trading update. Generally, ex- excluding many of the foreign adventures of our retailers, they've actually done very well domestically. Well, I would say so. I think uh, we definitely saw very strong numbers yesterday from, from Mr. Price. Um, just, you know, the, the top line growth um, in this sort of environment and along with margin expansion, expansion uh, which they mentioned, is, is quite commendable. Um, Lewis, uh, I think, did do fairly well on a top line basis, but uh, most of it being driven from the credit side. We obviously know that how they sell their furniture. The cash sales, not so good. I think they mentioned cash sales down 15%. For the period, so maybe a signal of the consumer uh, having to rely a bit more on uh, on the credit card to, uh, to 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 make to make to make do these days. But um, overall, I think uh, the retailers have been rather commendable. Um, you know, putting in the generators into the stores, so obviously getting more trading densities and so on. So just being good operators in a generally tough environment with issues around the ports and so on. No, I think it's been. I mean, the the flexibility of management teams has been been quite astounding. Today, banks did well. Gold shares did well. Resources generally did well. Is it all sort of hinged on China? If we get another bad data point out of China, do we go back to our deep funk and, uh, and seeing the, the losses wiped out that we've made this week? The gains wiped out. That, we've that made is this a week, possibility. <laughs> yes. Well, that, uh, that is a possibility. I think we, we, we are generally uh, quite con- – our, our performance is quite contingent on uh, our number one customer. Um, so when w- whatever happens in China these days obviously does reverberate around the world. 
I think luckily we ha- we are starting to see signs of, of stimulus coming from the from the, the Chinese government. Obviously, we saw yesterday them cutting their reserve requirement ratio, and today mentioning that even further stimulus is is, is likely. So we'll just have to see what they do with the, that additional stimulus that goes into the banks. It's plus minus around 130 billion dollars, which is now being released onto bank balance sheets. And where exactly is it going to be lent to? And is that going to be a benefit to our resource companies? Perhaps so, if uh, money goes into more infrastructure or small business loans, as they've as they've, as they've alluded to. So. Perhaps some benefits on the way, we hope, and not more uh, negative surprises. Tato Mashiho is a portfolio manager at Sunlum Private Wealth. But personal, but personal, but do you wear a watch? Do you still wear a watch? I haven't worn a watch very much at all since COVID. I got out of the habit, and now the very nice watch that I did wear feels heavy and clunky and in the way. I've got clocks on the computers I use. The precision of my cell phone clock is ever-present, and I used to lap up every single edition of Wanted and the FT's How to Spend It and fantasize about owning a Patek Philippe based on their payoff line, you never actually own a Patek Philippe, you merely look after it for the next generation. Ah, the marketers have got us, they really do. The latest trick is ultra-thin watches. This is a thing, apparently. Debbie Hathaway is a watch and jewellery writer. When we talk about thin watches, Debbie, uh, what do we mean? Are these sort of like uh, one millimetre, two millimetre, ten millimetres thick? How how big is a a thin watch? Good evening, listeners. Thank you for having me again. Um, Believe it or not, in 2020, Piaget won the Oscar of watchmaking, the top prize in this annual award for the world's thinnest mechanical watch, and that measured two millimeters thin. So that means the diameter, the depth of the case is only two millimeters. But two years later, Bulgari beat that. They came out with the Octo Finissimo Ultra Thin, which is just less than the depth of a 20 euro cent coin, 1.8 millimeters. It's the world record. And now this is the casing. So the the space inside the casing, because the casing's got to have some structure and some strength to it. The space inside the casing, where the mechanism fits, and these are mechanical watches, um, is is minuscule. Therefore, exactly, and that is why these pieces are so brilliant. Because the challenge is making the movement as thin as possible, because the movement dictates the depth of that case. And if they are putting more than one complication inside, for example, a tourbillon and a moon phase, it, it makes things difficult for the watchmakers. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I mean, I, the watch I've got, you can actually see the mechanism as you wind it. It's one of those perpetual winding things. As long as you keep moving, it keeps time. And you just look at the wonders of the mechanism and you look at the, the, the weightings and the, the cogs and the bearings. And these things are, are things of absolute beauty and designed to be shown off. But when you put it into these ultra thin spaces, it just seems impossible and i suppose that's what makes these things then collectible and valuable absolutely and that's how bulgari got shaved off that 0.2 millimeters of their movement is that they actually turned the movement into the dial Ah. i actually saw the piece in geneva when i was there two years ago and it really is a sight to behold i mean you can't believe 
They've even got a QR code engraved on the barrel's ratchet wheel that you can see. Um, and the designer who I spoke to was um, so amazed at the at the lightness. It's not only ultra thin, it's ultra light. It only weighs 44 grams. And talking about money, only 10 were made and they were pr- priced around 8.2 million rand <laughs> and they all sold almost immediately. <laughs> I mean, are these watches that people ever intend to wear? Because I'm assuming a couple of people will wear them. Or are these become, because they are limited edition and because they are so specialized and because they are at this stage the thinnest in the world, these are highly collectible. Um, do the collectibles go onto people's wrists ever at all? Absolutely. Um, Vacheron Constantin makes a beautiful perpetual calendar, ultra thin. It's uh, 4.05 millimeters thick, just under 2 million rand if you've got change in your pocket. Oh, good. I'm, I'm, I'm um, glad we're coming to the more affordable elements of the, of the watch <laughs> trade. My word. <laughs> and Piaget also makes a stunning uh, polo perpetual calendar ultra thin watch that they launched last year. It's also part of that ultra planner collection. That's 4 millimeters thick. That's just over a million. But the point is that they, Piaget makes the point that they don't design just for men or just for women. They, they design things of beauty, you know, that, that showcase craftsmanship and rare materials. Um, same as Bulgari. Bulgari's fusing Italian design and Swiss watchmaking. Um, and, and also, you know, um, watchmakers like JJ Lacoult, for example, They've just launched a new watch that's 12 millimeters, millimeters thick that's still in the ultra thin category, yeah. but it's not bordering on the extreme, you know. I mean, this this feels yeah. like a, a bit like an arms race or a space race. It's driven by ego and I suppose the desire for elegance and precision and brilliance in the most compact possible space. What is driving the trend uh, in in watchmaking? Well, there's been a move back towards classic understated designs since the pandemic, since you mentioned it. People wanted to be a lot less ostentatious with their accessories. Um, up until then, 40 watches had been um, really in the limelight. But now things are a little bit more balanced. And there's nothing nicer than seeing, in my case, I, I love seeing a gentleman dressed up in a beautiful suit and a and a tie with a lovely long sleeve and an ultra thin watch fits beautifully underneath that. There's nothing worse than having a sleeve sticking on a bulky watch that's sticking out. No, exactly. I mean, and, and I mean, there's still an attraction, especially if you're in politics, you want to show off your watches, you go for the, for the big uh, European names that we're all familiar with and everybody can see your watch. The understated nature of it, and I love the fact that there's a desire to be understated. Yes, this is my ultra thin watch. It only costs 8 million rand, but it's, look how, look how understated it is. There's a, a bit of a contradiction in that, in, in that sort of space. But so there, there is, an, uh, there is a space race equivalent happening in the world of watches. Um, and when we see the, the the sort of race for quality, however, and and for really quality manufacturing, that's still very much front and center of the watch trade because that is what makes them so pricey, so expensive, and ultimately the sort of watches that should last lifetimes, not just one lifetime. Absolutely. And the competitiveness amongst those brands are really the best in the world. You know, the, the brands that I've mentioned, 
Bashnal, Constantin, and Breguet were both founded in the early, in the mid 18th century. Georges Lecoultre in particular, early 19th century, and Piaget and Bulgari, late 19th century. And Bulgari only started making watches in 1977, so they're the youngest in this group. But all so esteemed and so highly respected, uh, for their, for their skills, and that, the, the, the combination of the mechanical expertise and the savoir-faire and the craftsmanship and the decoration really has to be seen to be believed. Astonishing. Thank you, Debbie Hathaway, watchers and jewellery writer Debbie Hathaway, who hangs around with people who are understated, understated people at 8 million rand a pop for these ultra-thin watches. If I get another watch, it will be, I'm afraid, it's going to be tacky and everything, but it's going to be one of the watches that pings and tells me my heart rate and stuff. If I ever have another watch, I don't know if I, yeah, do I care? I mean, give me one of the ultra-thin watches, I'm in just for the record, but, uh, and I will wear it because I want to be understated. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, yeah, do we really need watches? I wonder.